when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a si to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, And what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Uh, we're going to approach this chapter, and, and, and we've only read half of what we're going to look at tonight. Um, we're going to approach it in two halves. So that was the first half, and uh, that was in verses 21 to 26. And we're going to look at it under the title, Delivered into the Hands of Sinful Men. Um, so that will be the first half. And then we'll look at verses 27 to 54 uh, with the title delivered over to save and um, those will appear on the screen so i'm going to put a little uh, um, screen up so you can see um, which should help us to follow along so verses 1 to 26 jesus is handed over to sinful men you'll notice there are, is lots in this chapter about what people are doing their activity, their actions, what they say. In fact, it's mainly about that, isn't it? As Jesus is passed uh, from pillar to post, really, between the chief priests, pilots, the crowd, and finally the soldiers, 
uh, Jesus is delivered over to sinful men. So let's look at them in turn. First up we have Judas and he's there in verses three to four. He's the betrayer. That word is actually delivered over. It's the same word. Uh, and he tries to reverse what he's done in verses three to four. Let's read it together. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas knows he's guilty, doesn't he? He knows it. But what he does is he tries to reverse what he's done. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And yet his solution is to try to reverse the, the wrong things he's done. He goes to his contacts and not to the one he's sinned against, looking for forgiveness. And when he doesn't get it, well, he takes his own life. He's guilty. He knows it, but he tries to make amends in the wrong place. Judas hands Jesus over, doesn't he? We saw that last week. Uh, to the chief priests and the scribes, and they're the ones in verses 1 to 2. Uh, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. So this is a, a mob, an angry mob, who have arrested Jesus. And yet they think that they're not so bad, and we'll see why in just a moment. These are guys who, in verse 1, take counsel to decide what charge to bring against Jesus. An account of blasphemy that they've said earlier, well, that's hardly going to prompt a Roman execution. No, for that they're going to need a far more political crime, something like sedition or trying to overthrow the powers um, of Rome. From what Pilate says later in verse 11, the charge that they decide upon is that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. Uh, let me read to you this quote. Judas, despite his remorse, is unable to offload his guilt. But at the same time, the return and use of the blood money also implicates the chief priests and elders, thus adding to the accumulated blood guilt already spelt out by Jesus. Woe to you, hypocrites. Um, you plan the deaths, uh, the murder just like your ancestors did. So the mob of murderers, they're guilty too. We're seeing, aren't we, that each person in this chapter is guilty. They're all implicated in the death of Jesus. And yet the thing that struck me is that they don't consider themselves to be guilty. Um, if you look down and what they say in verse 4, in response to Judas, they say, what is that to us? See to it yourself which interestingly is what Pilate's going to say uh, about handing Jesus over to be crucified. See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas parted and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them back into the treasury, since it is blood money. You get the irony? They've just uh, allowed, uh, or, or basically asked someone to help them with the death, uh, to, to convict Jesus. And to hand him over and yet they're saying oh you know this money we can't it's not lawful to put it into the treasury so they're guilty but they don't really see it and actually they think that by some goodness of their own something that they have done 
um, that they can they can offset it. They're still not seeing that they are guilty. Next up, uh, handed over that word, isn't it? They handed over in verse two, Jesus bound uh, to Pilate. Now Pilate is actually the guy who's in charge. Um, he is the one person that in human terms has the casting vote. He's the governor and he's appointed governor to bring a sentence. That's his job. We're told that Pilate knew their motive in verse 18. So if you flick over the page, maybe to verse 18, it says, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Same word, delivered him up. But Pilate knew that it was out of envy. We're also told that, that Pilate was warned by his wife that Jesus is a righteous man. What will Pilate, with all that recognised authority and the knowledge that he's been given, what will he do? Well, to summarise so that we see the madness of all this, in one decision, Pilate hands over all of his authority. To who? To the crowd, to the people. It's madness. He hands over his authority to the crowd. I think Pilate thought that he was being clever by this. He had a plan, and the plan was to construct a vote, give them a choice. And by put, pitting a despicable candidate on, his, on this side, the opposite side to Jesus, he thought that it was a, a sure win. He thought he could turn the crowd to say, well, no, that's the, the, the guilty one. Perhaps he thought he could keep their approval and keep Jesus alive. But it is vanity, isn't it, to believe that the crowd, who are mainly Jews, would play along with the occupying power. They're not going to want to uh, play along with him. Pilate is actually the one referenced more than any other person in this chapter. And yet when his idea begins to unravel before his eyes, he declares in verse 24... He washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. So the man who is mentioned more than anyone else in this chapter is saying, I am innocent. And he thinks that just by giving the decision to someone else, that he's not guilty. But he is. That's clearly a delusion, isn't it? It's where we get the expression, washing your hands of something, meaning to have no part in something. But that's a delusion, isn't it? We can see that. Pilate is guilty. And last of all, he hands him over, Jesus over to the people. And we see that in verses 20 to 26. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. That the frenzied crowd are guilty, but they want to be. It's really striking, isn't it? What they say um, in verse 25. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. So they're guilty, but they don't seem to care. They don't see a problem with that. And that's a, the last and final group of sinful men uh, that we get seen in this chapter.
But actually, it shows us from that last group what conclusion Matthew is drawing from all this. He's showing us all, all of humanity is united against God's Son and implicated in his death. When this guilt is exposed, they either don't see the problem or they try to deal with it themselves. How does Judas do it? He tries to right his wrongs. How does the Pharisees do it? They think that they can do other good things and that defines what, what's good. Pilate thinks we shift the blame. It's not, it doesn't involve me. The crowd actually are the only ones who've got it right. We are guilty. But they don't seem bothered about it. Matthew is showing us that all of humanity is united against God's Son, including me, including you. We're included in Matthew's crowd, all. None of them trying to do anything about it is going to make a blind bit of difference. That's the first thing this chapter teaches us. But before we leave this half of the chapter, there's one more name that comes up. Can anyone think who it is? It's Barabbas. Now you might say that Barabbas is there to show us the evil of their choice. And it certainly does do that, doesn't it? But I think Matthew has other ideas for him and including him. He wants to reinforce what he's going to go on to teach about Jesus' death and what it means. Because Barabbas... You think the other guys are, are evil and guilty? You think we're evil and guilty? Well, Barabbas is the, is the one that we would all see as being the most guilty, surely? Condemned. Because he is a murderer. And he's the one in prison, awaiting death. When Jesus takes the place on the cross, what he's doing is allowing Barabbas to walk free. There is an amazing thing here. A picture was shown of the swap. Jesus takes Barabbas' place. Barabbas walks free. Um, let me just read what's on the screen. We are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus says, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified on the third day, who will be raised to life. I'm going to mention that verse in just a moment because of that, that word delivered over. It's exactly the same word that we've been seeing. As Jesus is handed between people, that word delivered over is the word that Jesus used. And notice he gets the order exactly right, doesn't he? He knows exactly that will be delivered over to the chief priests and then they will hand them over to the Gentiles. Uh, let's, let's move on to our second part and Kenny's going to read for us um, delivered over to save, which is from verses 27 to 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Thanks, Kenny. Uh, it is a normal reaction, isn't it? When you see someone in distress, I don't know who the last person you saw in distress was, um, you feel pity, don't you? Our tendency is to pity them. 
we're going to see if we only ever pity Jesus, we haven't really understood who he is and what Matthew's showing us that he's doing. Don't miss the hidden reality of these scenes. Jesus is God's king. He's delivered over to save us. Let's see that first by picking up that handed over, delivered over word. It's the word that was used throughout this chapter. And it's also the word that is translated as betray. But it's also the word that Jesus used in that verse I just showed you in chapter 20, where Jesus predicts the exact order of events. So Jesus being handed over to sinful men was actually God's plan. And it was always God's plan. Let me read to you a quote. Judas handed over to the priests out of greed and took money for it. The priests handed Jesus over to Pilate out of envy and self-righteousness. Pilate handed Jesus over out of cowardice and they killed him. Yet God handed Jesus over for us all. Romans chapter 4 verse 23. Thus the motive was not ultimately Judas's desire for money, Pilate's fear, or the Jews' envy, but the Father's love. We saw this, didn't we, in the garden and Jesus's arrest. His choice was not to save himself, but to do his Father's will, which was to lay down his life. To take on himself all of the rightful anger of God that sin that was the cup he spoke of and then we get the details of what Jesus faced here in these verses the second half is all about the details of what Jesus faced and you'll notice that Matthew doesn't focus on the gory details the reference to the bloody execution has anyone seen the passion of the Christ well, if you're under the age of 18, you shouldn't have done, so put your hands down. Um, it is an 18 because Mel Gibson, his portrayal of the, the crucifixion is, is, is gory. It's no holds barred. But you'll notice that Matthew's passion is not Mel Gibson's passion of the Christ. You look down, try to find the references to, to blood and guts and gore. And you'll see it's not there. Actually, the cross itself only gets a brief mention. Uh, and that's down in verse, yeah, in verse 35. So it only gets mentioned in passing, doesn't it, the cross? The whole crucifixion scene is mentioned in passing. Now, the shock factor in these verses isn't the blood and guts, but it's mockery. Why is mockery such a big theme? Why does Matthew take the time to tell us what the soldiers, the chief priests, the passers-by, and even the criminals either side of Jesus say of him? Why does he spend all that time doing it? Because mockery is both fulfilment of the scriptures and its revelation about Jesus. He is the king. Now let's have a look at that together. Um, so if you look up on the screen, there's some pictures. I've already said that the charge they bring against Jesus is what? King of the Jews. That's what Pilate asks him, are you king of the Jews? That's what they think is going to get him in trouble. It's ironic, isn't it? Jesus is the king. You get the, um, the scene that we just read, that Kenny just read. 
and and it, and it's acted out that Jesus is the king they put a robe on him they gave him a, a, a rod a staff they put um, a crown of thorns on his head they bow down and pretend to worship him Jesus is the king their mockery the content of their mockery reveals that reveals this doesn't it it's ironic they don't see it but Jesus is the king the soldiers dress up Jesus up as king they give him a robe a staff and a crown they pay homage to him saying hail um, we're gonna look at a few of them in just a moment uh, but we see that Jesus was mocked as the king and it's all to show us what we read in the passage like Psalm 22. Psalm 22 talks about the mockery. They walk past, they wag their heads, they shake their heads at him. And they say, ha ha ha, he can't save himself. So it's to show us the mockery and the emphasis on mockery is to show us that Jesus is the promised king and the suffering king. So when we think of the crucifixion, actually our, our picture needs to change isn't it we often think of just the, the him hanging on the on the cross which of course is the moment he died but the mockery actually shows that he is the king we're going to have our second reading kenny can you read that for us 33 to 44 yeah wine to drink mixed with gall but when he tasted it he would not drink it and when they had crucified him they divided his garments among them by casting lots then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Thanks, Kenny. Um, I'm just adding the two pictures up on the screen there. Um, more mockery of Jesus, more revelation that he is a king. Um, the, cross, the sign above his head saying this is Jesus, king of the Jews, as she says that. And they say in their mockery, this is Jesus, king of Israel. You're, you are the king of Israel. So mockery really does reveal the, the identity of Jesus, which makes, it, which makes it all the more astounding, isn't it, that this is the man who is on the cross, who is taking our place, that he is God's king, reigning king, forever king, and yet he is dying to save us. Jesus the king handed over to save us. How does Jesus' death save us? What does it save us from? Well, we're going to read our last uh, reading in verses 45 to 54. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, 
Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is the moment Jesus dies, breathes its last, and that we're focusing in on now. And we get a number of things that happen. Darkness um, on your screen. Darkness over the land um, is probably from Joel uh, 3, verse 15 to 16, which I'll just read for you now. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. Darkness is the judgment from heaven. And we see that in the cry of Jesus, don't we? What does Jesus say? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We read that, didn't we, in Psalm 22. My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far off? Why are you not saving me? How does Jesus' death save us? What does it actually do? Well, notice that Jesus is forsaken. He is cut off from his father. But the judgment for sin actually means that Jesus no longer knows his presence with him and is abandoned. That really is the central. Jesus' words on the cross are, why have you forsaken me? That's what it means. And yet, even now, he fixes his eyes and hope in God, doesn't he? He says, my God, my God. And if Jesus was forsaken, then guilty people need never be forsaken by God. Those for whom he died to save need never be forsaken. So Jesus is in charge. He is giving up his life. He's yielding up his spirit. He's deciding to lay down his life. That's the wonderful thing that Jesus' death achieves. We see that again um, in verses uh, 51 to 54. The signs that happen immediately after Jesus breathing his last. Let's read them. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus was forsaken. He was denied access to the Father on the cross because of sin. But because of his death, sinners can have access to God himself. So the temple curtain was to say, You're not... You're not you're sinners, you stay out of God's presence. It would be dangerous for you to come close. And yet when that curtain is torn down, the way has been made open for sinners to know God. That's what Jesus' death achieved. You'll see as well that the, uh, the, the, the sign of the resurrection is there. Um, so the people in the, in the past who believed um, and trusted in the God of, uh, the God of Yahweh, uh, the God of the Bible, um, are raised immediately to show that they were include they're included in this promise 
um, in what Jesus has achieved for them. Last thing, the saints are raised and people believe. The soldiers believe, don't they? Um, that's what we see. The very last verse is, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. People who had just moments ago put him to death are saying that he was the Son of God. So Jesus' death even saves complete outsiders, people who never heard of this before at all. Uh, well, what will we take home from this? If you're new and looking into Jesus, because the cross is just so memorable, isn't it? And it's so well known. Everyone thinks they can explain it. And so that there will even be blockbuster movies you can go to um, to try and work it out, figure it out. But can I commend to you that you need Jesus and what he says in order to explain it? He's the one who should know, surely? Otherwise, I think we'll stop short of seeing the deeper reality of what happened that day, of who Jesus really is. We'll be left with just kind of pity or feel sorry for him, or maybe even in intrigue and admiration for him, who's brave. But we'll never have the gratitude of knowing what he has done for us. Jesus saves guilty sinners. He does that through his death on the cross. And that sacrifice is enough to save anyone from the wrath of God forever. Having seen our guilt, though, and that we are involved in this, it would be worth remem us remembering that all the other options get people nowhere, don't they? The people who try to make amends for what they've done or try to focus on their goodness in some other areas or who shift the blame and say it's not it's not really my fault i'm not involved none of that is going to work we are guilty and that is exactly why jesus death is such good news for me it's good news for guilty people i remember the first time someone explained to me probably wasn't the first time actually it was at Easter someone said to me that Jesus died for me and I could see that and I thought he, he's worth living for isn't he he would give up so much and die for me uh, if you're regular to church it might be that the message of the cross is so familiar to you but it's never been groundbreaking we know of it and about it we can even explain it, but we've never yet experienced the joy of God's unconditional love in, in this good news. A preacher called Dick Lucas likened the Christian life to learning to swim. Uh, it's only by abandoning our own efforts. So when you're learning to swim, if you've got your toe on the bottom of the pool, even, even the smallest thing, trying to hold yourself up, we're going to drown, aren't you? You're never going to swim. And yet by abandoning everything that we would put our hope in, everything that we think will make us right with God, all of our own efforts will, will really get it. We'll really see that God's love, his grace, is enough to, to pull us to the surface. The sacrifice is enough.
And this is true, really, if, we, if we're trusting in other kind of religious things. Because those kind of sacrifices, whether it's our money, whether it's our time, they're not the sacrifice that God is pleased with. He is, there is one sacrifice that God is pleased with and that God accepts, and that is his son on the cross. Uh, maybe you're a believer. Well, if you are, this isn't a theory that we just learn about Jesus' death on the cross. It's, it's a reality for you. Let's have a look at some of the things, the, the, the people who uh, are changed by this amazing news. Uh, there's joy, isn't there, from that Roman centurion. A joy that comes from knowing that you are friends with God, that he accepts you, that you are no longer his enemy. A joy that isn't dependent on our circumstances. Maybe you know someone who's a Christian and you just think, yeah, they've got a joy. It keeps them going, even when everything's against them. There's intimacy, isn't there? So um, this one thing I've been struck by is that the access to God is open. We can approach him. I can come into God's presence now without fear. He is my father. He is my friend. He is my saviour. The enjoyment of the Christian is to, to, to delight to be with him, to be able to speak with him in prayer. Is that your experience? Another thing is that death no longer has terrors for the Christian. They know that they're going to be raised, just as Jesus Christ was raised. And that's what we're going to see next week. But there is one thing uh, in passing that Matthew shows us what discipleship looks like. Um, and it's here in verse 23, uh, verse 32, sorry, I'm just going to end with this thing. Verse 32, it says, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Siren, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Matthew never leaves us too far from this picture of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. And it's being associated with his death, isn't it? The fact that Jesus died for me, and I want to tell other people about it, means that I'm going to be associated with him in his death. And that will mean some of the mockery. Like people saying, that's ridiculous. And so the picture you get is of Simon carrying the cross. Um, it's just a it's just a passing image, but it's it's the discipleship, isn't it? It's the following Jesus. That's what it's going to mean. Um, so why don't we pray uh, that God would write these things on our hearts, uh, that He would help us to pray them for each other, and that He would help us to to speak to other people about this good news. Let's pray. Father, you sent your son, the one whom, in whom you delighted in, one in whom you had unbroken fellowship with, and the one who delighted in you perfectly. Thank you that he was obedient to you, and that he, he loved you. And thank you that he was willing to 
to suffer to go through with your plan to save us. Thank you that it was him on the cross when it should have been us. Thank you that the judgment fell on him and not on me. Thank you for the joy of knowing you, uh, the access to you being open, that guilty sinners can know you. Thank you uh, for the hope uh, in death, that death no longer has terrors for us. We don't need to fear it because of what Jesus has done in taking death and beating it. Uh, thank you for um, the honour it is to be counted with you and with your gospel. Uh, just seem ridiculous and will receive scorn and mockery. Uh, but it is the power to save. Please would you save people, um, perhaps people we know. And use us, we pray. Amen. <laughs>